Um, starting a new series, and a lot of it's been born actually just this past week. Um, after coming out of our last series on Warren of Fitness, you know, a few themes came out of that, and a lot of feedback that I got from you was to dig a little bit deeper. I had two meetings this week, and those two meetings in particular have had an indelible impact on how I'm presenting what I'm presenting to you this morning. Um, so we're going to go a little bit deeper. Warren Fitness might have shown a few things, but now we're going to go seeking the heart of God and figuring out why we do what we do and who are we really as God's people. I'm going to show you this map. Can anyone guess what city that is? Thank you. can only be Rome. And you're like, yeah, right, Okay. Uh, if you look in the middle, you could just see in small writing there, right in the middle next to the blue dot, Colosseum. Can you see that? No, it's right in the middle. Um, there it is, Colosseum. If you go kind of diagonal to the left, you can see the smallest country in the world. That's the Vatican. It's kind of highlighted in white there. That's how small it is. Now, Rome in itself is a really small city compared to a place like Auckland. Auckland's actually very spread out. Sydney is as well. It's very spread out cities. Rome's compact. It's small, considering there's more than 5 million people squeezed into that small space. Um, and this is, you know, my heritage. My, I would say my identity is found here because in this little red, well, it's not red, but kind of dot there, that's where my father and his family have been living for the last 200 years. That's well, it's as far back as I've been able to, to find out, but I imagine it might be longer. But that is what we would call home, what my dad would have called home. Now, if I zoom in a little bit, um, that's what it looks like. That's pretty intense, isn't it? They're all apartment blocks, right? There's two main streets. There's this one up here at the top going down that way. That's called the Via Tusculana. Can you say that? Tusculana, yes. Uh, Tusculanum, that is the road that takes you to the Alban Hills where all the uh, emperors had their lovely fancy villas and where the wine comes from to Rome. This other one right here along this red dot, this big one here, this is called the Via Appia Nuova, the new Appian Way. Everyone knows about the Appian Way, right? The main road that the Romans used to take, they would walk that street into Rome that led to the Circus Maximus, the champion armies coming from the east would come down this road 
And that little red dot, that's where my father grew up. That's also where my grandfather grew up. That's also where my great-grandfather grew up. It's the same apartment block that they've been in for a long, long time. My grandfather was actually born in the apartment. It's kind of weird, isn't it? But that's what they did back then. And what's really weird and interesting is this red dot is where my grandmother was born. And that's where her father was born. And what's really interesting is, like, this is typical of Italians in general, but this red dot over here, the name of that church is Santa Maria in Auxiliatrice. Try saying that one. <laughs> That's the main church. And as you can see, it's quite extensive grounds. That is basically pretty much every church uh, in my family, is, well, my dad's side of the family has been married in or baptized in. That's where dad's funeral was. And then there's this little school off to the right of that. That's called the Asilo, the primary school, where pretty much every Petrini went through. There's some stories to be said about that, but I won't say much more. So when I moved to Rome in 1988, this is where I lived. And taking out the church and the school, in 1988, this is where all my relatives lived. It took me a long time to kind of remember all the addresses. And I did. I sat down and I just went through them all. And, it, you know, each red dot represents an apartment block. Each red dot doesn't just represent one family. It could represent seven or eight families who lived in the same apartment block. Um, it was pretty intense. Now, I have a fondness for Rome. That's where my dad's history is. It's where I met Monica. Um, and I lived there six years. And this was... Family, it's a bit overwhelming, isn't it? Ask Monica. When she was pregnant with our first child, with Bella, we went to Rome, and on the Via Pianova, there's all these shops and stuff, and people go in and out. And at nighttime in particular, everyone goes out for what they call the passeggiata, the walk. And poor old Mon, she's out with me, and all these people are coming up to her, touching her belly. Yeah, okay. someone's like, ooh. Exactly. Monica, who's that? Who's that? Oh, that's a cousin from, oh, they live around the corner here. But it was just overwhelming, all these, to her, strangers, just having the freedom to come up and touch her belly. Didn't go down well. But that's the way it was, 1980. Now, last time I was in Rome was in 2019, right before the pandemic broke out. And you know how much of my family lives there now? That's, that's pretty much it. It's, um, it was weird. So when I caught up with some of my cousins, I said, it's really weird to walk the streets and not see people I know. Not be able to engage with people, people wanting to engage with me because most of the times I, I was kind of clueless half the time about who was who. And they would pull me up and say, hi, Rob, or what's going on, Rob, or I heard this about you, Rob, and... You know, all those things. I said, it's really weird to walk the streets and not engage with anybody. Now, a lot of my grandparents' generation and some of my dad's generation have passed away. But what has happened over time is that my generation in particular have moved away. They've taken jobs elsewhere. They've gone to places, to other countries, other cities, other parts of Rome. 
And over time, it's reduced to this. What I found interesting about it was that for 200 years or more, the Petrini-Dundini clan was in one spot of Rome. And in the space of one or two generations, they're gone. Completely gone. I, I, I find it fascinating. Does anyone know what a pepiha is? Yeah, it says this. A pepiha is a form of introduction and introduces identity and heritage. In formal settings, the pepiha forms part of an individual's mihi. I found this fascinating. When I came to New Zealand, this idea of pepiha or mihi was, you know, we had to share our identity, our heritage. And it drove me to do the whole ancestry thing and find out about myself, which I had largely ignored for most of my life. I found it a fascinating exercise. So maybe some of you heard me do a pepiha, but when I do it, especially in a formal setting, I do it in Italian. I share it in Italian and I share my history, my, my river being the Tiber River, my mountain being, well, not a mountain, but one of the seven hills of Rome. And so I went back home to mum, and this was a few years ago, and I shared with her my pepiha. I said, this is what we do in New Zealand. She's like, oh, that's fascinating. But I'm offended. I'm like, oh, why are you offended? She goes, your heritage is not just Roman. You know that, right? That's just your dad. What about me? I was like, eh, fair enough. So I said, okay, ma, tell me about you. So, you know, you saw that city of Rome and how compact my dad's family is. Well, this is the playing mat that I've got to work with my mum. See, my mum and her brother and sister were all born in Alexandria in Egypt. But neither of her parents were actually Egyptian. My grandparents weren't Egyptian. They just happened to have found each other there, married there. Um, well, they were actually refugees due to lots of circumstances. But my grandfather was actually born in Hama. In fact, my mum's maiden name is Hamana, which in Arabic means from Hama. So my grandfather's paternal side comes from the town of Hama. My grandmother, on the other hand, was born in Konya, in central Turkey. Now, their heritage doesn't just lie in those cities or in those places. My grandmother extends to Greece, where she would have identified herself more Greek than Turkish. And her family came from Thessaloniki. But my grandfather, his mother, was born and raised in Lebanon. So I said, Ma, what's your river? I don't know. What's your heritage? What's... She couldn't give me one. And it's fascinating because when I think of my own kids, they, they don't have that attachment to Rome like I do. And I don't have any attachment to Alexandria as my mum would have. People say, well, you're born in Sydney, Rob. Yeah, I love-hate relationship with Sydney and with Australia in general. Eh, struggle with it. I didn't grow up at a pleasant time being, you know, a guy who has a first name and surname ending in a vowel, living in white Australia in the 70s was very difficult. So I struggle with trying to figure out my identity. I met with um, Anne Borquist. Anne runs Arotahi here in the Wellington region. Arotahi is now part of NZBMS, um, uh, our Baptist missionary arm. 
And she was talking about this, um, this guy who's writing a paper. Now, I can't remember his name. He's a Māori guy who's writing a paper on how do displaced people give a pepiha? People who he's now encountering more and more who don't have a connection to, say, a hill or a river, who don't have a connection or roots in something. And so she was asking me, how do you feel about that, Rob? And I said, that's a great question. Because my mum's challenged me on me being so proud to be Italian. Well, my name tells me my Italianisms, but actually there's more to me than just that. And I'm not even sure the Tiber River really is my river. It's not the George's River in Sydney. And she's like, well, what is your river? I, I don't know. What's shaped you? Where do you make your stand? And that's the question this guy's asking. Where do you make your stand? And she asked me that question. I said, Jesus, without hesitation. And she's like, ah. So I said, if that's the case, my hill is Calvary. And I guess my river is the blood of Christ. Because if anything has had more of an impact on my life, it's Jesus. If there's anything in my life that has shaped me, it is Jesus. If there's anything in my life that compels me, it's Jesus. Now, sure, there's my heritage, there's Rob, and there's all my mannerisms. Someone was saying, I think it was yesterday, Johnny Groves is not here. He says, I'm going to tie your hands behind your back and see if you can preach. <laughs> you know, there's, there's Italianisms that I've got. I get that. That's part of me. I look and sound like my father. I know that. People say that to me all the time, those who are part of our family. I get that. And while my family and my heritage and, and all of this has shaped me in some sort of way, Jesus has completely overrun me. I met with Derek this week and then he shared with me this email yesterday, which I read and I just I couldn't get it out of my head. Now, I'm, I'm taking snippets of it. If you want the full email, just talk to Derek. It's just this um, uh, devotional he's reading from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? And, and this was some of the things that were said in it. We are moving toward a completely religionless time. People, as they are now, cannot, simply cannot be religious anymore. Even those who honestly describe themselves as religious do not in the least act up to it. That was kind of the gist of what he was talking about. But it was this phrase that hit me between the eyes. It was this. What is bothering me incessantly is the question, what Christianity really is, or indeed, who Christ really is for us today, for you, for me. This was written in the 40s, almost 100 years ago. And we are compelled today with this question, what does Christ really mean for us, for me, for you? What role does he have in shaping who we are? And on reflecting on that, all these verses started kind of pouring out and began to make a little bit more sense to me because, you know, when you're a pastor and you preach, you get people who want you to preach on the really difficult things that they don't understand in the Bible, but they don't realize that I don't understand them either, right? And so I've got to research it and study it and try to come up with some sort of way of explaining it. You know, verses like this one, do not suppose that I've come here to bring peace to earth. This is 
Jesus talking. You know, when we do Christmas, what do we say? Peace on earth. Jesus is here. And this is what he's saying to us. I didn't come here to bring peace. Thank you. That's really cool. Okay. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against a father, a daughter against a mother, a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He goes on to say, if you don't love me more than your mother and father, you're not worthy of me. If you don't love me more than your children, you are not worthy. That's a hard thing. But it makes sense to me now. He's not telling us that he wants you to hate your parents, even though in some translations it does say you must hate your mother and father. He's not saying, that's not what he's meaning. It's saying that our identity, where is it found? Where, where is it found? Is it found in what I do or who's around me or my heritage or is it found in Jesus? Paul takes it a step further. There's neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And these verses begin to make sense to me as I'm, you know, after just reading that one email yesterday. A lot of work between yesterday and this morning, by the way. I had to rewrite a whole lot of things. But it makes sense now. These things make sense to me now. It's like a little light bulb. I've been doing this for 25 years. You'd think I would have gotten it by now. But the light bulb was like, it's all about identity. And all of a sudden, Pepiha makes sense. Oh, yeah, it's about identity and heritage. It's, it's telling everybody who we are, how we identify ourselves. What, what is our heritage? I don't want to dishonor my parents. I, I honour them. At times I've questioned them. I'm sure just as my kids uh, have questioned and still continue to question me. Constantly. <laughs> Identity and heritage. This is what we are going to be focused on over the next few weeks. And part of this I'm going to be talking through the temple and what that looks like, because, you know, there's only one house God told us to build, and he gave very specific instructions for it. And if that doesn't open your eyes to how intentional God is about this, then I'm going to help you open them. Because this whole Bible, the whole thing about Jesus, very intentional. The whole thing is not just random stories pulled together. There is intention. That means God has a will and a way. It's part of our identity and it's part of our heritage. So let me tell you a story. It all begins in a garden. The garden is called Eden. Eden in Hebrew means delight. There's only one other part in the book of this great book we call the Bible where Eden is reset. Do you know what part and what book that's in? Song of Solomon. Yep, some nervous laughter going on there. But garden, a place of delight. God communes with humanity. He creates and then he communes until something happens that uh, 
goes from what the Hebrew says, tov, which is good, to something that is not good, which in Hebrew means is said as ra. And when it becomes ra, not good, they are cast out from the delight, the garden. Now, a lot of people like to think that this garden is a place on earth. That's all good and well, but without God in it, it's not a place. Because the whole point of Eden is God being there with his creation. But we can't be there because we're separated now. Sin has come into play. And these guys graduate from eating an apple or a mango, whatever fruit it was, we don't know, to envy, to murder, to then wanting to build a tower all the way up to heaven, to the point where God gets pretty frustrated with this creation he's made. He wants to get rid of them all. So he drowns them, except for a little bunch. Then throws a rainbow in and says, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And then they go on and they keep growing and multiplying until he meets Abraham. And with Abraham, he says, stop. It's through you that I'm going to create something that will ultimately redeem all. It starts with one old man in the middle of nowhere and through Abraham. And Abraham's not really a holy guy, to be honest. It's an old guy, palms his wife off as his sister to save his own skin, not once but twice, not sure how that marriage lasted. His son does the same thing, learns from the father. His sons fight amongst each other, steal each other, and their sons end up fighting over each other till it ends with a boy in a well being sold off by his brothers into slavery. And that's just the first book of the Bible. First five books are called the Torah, but in Hebrew it's only one book, the Torah. We've broken it up into five books, just easier to read. But it's actually one book. And in it, God's redemption story begins. His plan for redemption begins. It starts with his people in slavery, and he takes them through what the Jews or the Hebrews call Yam Sufer. Yam Suf is called the Sea of Reeds. It's the moment in which the people are baptized as into a new covenant with Moses. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, that our ancestors in the wilderness long ago, all of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In that cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. Just like Jesus, when he began his ministry, he went to the Jordan and himself was baptized and himself was dedicated, consecrated to God, as was the Israelites as they passed through those waters. And then for 40 years in the wilderness, like Jesus after his own baptism, went 40 days into the desert. Tribe of 12 that led them through this as Jesus chose his 12 apostles to lead with him. And in that process, they were challenged on three main areas. Was God going to provide to us while we're in the desert? And such as manna was given to the people. They tested God constantly to the point where even Moses got fed up with them. And rather than speak to the rock, he hit the rock. 
And of course, they really struggled with bending the knee to the wrong things, like the golden calf. And when Jesus himself was tempted in the desert, the first temptation was God's provision. Turn these stones into bread. The second was throw yourself off the cliff. Let God send his angels, test him. And then the third, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you just bow before me. The ties and connections are intentional. Jesus is showcasing the identity and heritage of his people, of us. Going on, out of the desert, the law was given from the mountaintop. And just as Jesus came to the Sermon on the Mount, and what did he do? He broke down the law. You have heard, do not murder, let me tell you. If you even think it, you're doing it. From the mountaintop, then in the desert, they celebrate salvation in the Passover, freedom from slavery. Jesus Christ becomes the firstborn, gave his life for us so that we aren't slave to sin anymore. The intention of this story is intense. It's a new covenant we now have in Jesus. It is our identity. It is our heritage. We have done exactly what the Israelites have done. We have gone through those waters. We have been in our wilderness. We have struggled with temptation. And we find salvation in Jesus Christ. He brought what was good that then became bad from from Tov to Ra and brought it back to Tov again. It's good. We are good. Forty years of process of redemption. For some of us, it's still a process, right? But if this is our heritage, if this is our pepiha, our identity, what does it mean? What, what, does it, how, what does it look like? Because, you know, when it comes to Jesus, we're all pretty, um, as my mother puts it, you know, in her way, she says, we're all frou-frou. We're all kind of fluffy. Because we want our Jesus our way, kind of like eggs. Scrambled, or what, what do you guys do when you dip it in the hot water thing? What's that called? That's weird. Poached. Fried. I don't know. You know, all these things we do with eggs. It's the same with Jesus. I think some of us treat him like he's eggs. We just want him our way. Rather than actually, maybe there is a way that he wants. God was very clear about how the Jew or the Israelites were to worship him, to follow him. Now, we don't do that today. I mean, there's the Ten Commandments. We all think they're really important, though, don't we? How does that impact us today? We always look at the words and, you know, we get very technical about, well, who knows what the first three commandments were. Yep, you cut, yep that's, that's exactly what Jesus said. Let's just put it. The first three are all about worship. And Jesus summed it up, the first three, very simply by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your spirit, with all your soul, with everything. Right? That's absolutely true. They're the first three. The fourth one, who knows what the fourth one is? Keep holy the Sabbath day. And then the rest of them, 
It's all about our walk. It's, it's, it's symbolic about what it means to follow Jesus, follow God, and, and in turn for how we follow Jesus. It's about worshipping. It's about how we work, how we express ourselves to the people around us. And it's how we walk. He also brought out the law. Now, that's really confusing, the law. It really is. The Jews have been arguing it over for centuries, millennia. By the time it got to Jesus' time, even he's trying to help them understand what the law's about. But it is complicated. It's hard to be holy. There's no doubt about that. And Jesus does a really good job of summing up what that looks like in the Sermon on the Mount. So not only does he give us some simple instructions about how we can live holy, he also gives us something else, the tabernacle, the temple. The tabernacle in the desert was this tent that was in the center of town, center of everybody, and everyone gathered around it. It was the place where God was. And then as they graduated to a city in Jerusalem, it became the center of the city where everybody hung out at. It was a place of worship. It was a place of work. It was a place of walk. So these three things, we look at them in the Old Testament and we feel that Jesus has kind of superseded that. And the Jews think that too, right? Because they asked Jesus, we don't need the law anymore, do we? No, 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 the law's not obsolete. I've come to complete the law. So is the temple obsolete? Knock down this temple and I'll rebuild it in? Are we individually the temples of Jesus? Sure, his spirit lives in us. But here's the challenge. What does God want from us in all of this? What is his will for us in all of this? Because in Hebrews, the temple is a pretty important thing. He says this, they serve as a sanctuary that is a copy, a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses is warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So this temple thing is not just something for a specific time. It's a copy of something that's apparently in heaven. So why don't we copy it today? Oh, that's an interesting question. That's one to talk about. That song that you heard earlier, take the coal, touch my lips, here I am. The coal comes from the burnt offering that happened at the temple. That burnt offering today is Jesus Christ. And as he touches our lips, he cleanses us of our sins so that we can stand before God, it comes from Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is confronted by God. He wakes up in, in God's holy space and he freaks out. I am not clean. I am, I am a sinful person. I'm going to die. I can't be here. And a seraphim grabs a coal, touches his lip and says, you are now cleansed. And it's after this verse that he then then stands. This is part of our identity. This is part of our heritage. This is us. So what does it mean for us? We're in a stage and a time of our life as a church where you're going to come into church next week and it's not going to look like anything you see it out there today. 
It's going to be different. It's not going to be brown, dark walls. There aren't going to be movie posters up anymore. It's going to be very different. And some of you are going to be pretty much, yay, this is so much better. Others of you are going to feel like, oh, I kind of liked it. But someone is changing our space. And how important is space? For God, it was very important. For Jesus, it was very important. People tell me church is not a building. I agree, it's not a building, it's people. But for crying out loud, you wouldn't say that your house is a family. But you would say your house is integral to the life of your family. And there is nothing you guys spend, or we all spend money on, more than our houses. You know that, right? I've been mortgaged for two years. After taxes, that mortgage will take away half of my wages. There's nothing else that comes close. My kids can't even try to get that close, though they try. And that's just a mortgage. We've got maintenance, we've got to keep it warm, we've got to look after it. It's our biggest expense. It's where memories are made too. It's also the place we spend most time in our whole lives. So no, the church is not the building. But then what is? What do we sacrifice to come together like we sacrifice for our own families? That is why building is important to God. Not for the walls but for the sacrifice we make together to give to him what we do here together. And worship. How many of you tell me you don't like music? That's not for you. It's a sacrifice we make together for him. Why? Because he asks it from us. And our time. Who's got time? I'm a pastor and I don't have time anymore. It feels like it. I met with a few of the pastors a couple of weeks ago. Two of them were just sitting there blank-faced. They were so funny. They just, I'm like, you guys okay? Five meetings today. That was both of them. I'm like, I get it. The emotional drain that comes out of it. I just got no time anymore to go to these meetings, to go do these things, to go see this, go do that. We don't have time to serve God. Well, well, let's get somebody else to do it. These are the things that we're going to be talking through over the course of the next few weeks. What does it look like? And we're going to see it through God's design of building, God's design of a space. We're going to see it through discipline. What does it mean to pray? What does it mean to sacrifice ourselves to God? We don't burn offerings anymore. Jesus has done that for us. But what does it look practically for us individually? How do I pray? How do I worship? How do I engage with God in a way that would honor him? You ready for it? (laughs) Didn't we just do this for 12 weeks, Rob? Yeah, we did. And we're going to be doing it for another five. And we'll most probably do it for another five after that, another 12 after that. Why? Because our hearts, our identity, our heritage is in Jesus Christ. And we want to grow more and more like him. Amen? Amen. So be challenged. This is just an introductory sermon. Next week, we'll get into it. 
Next week, we'll, we'll start with that brazen altar as we walk into that holy space and understand what sacrifice means. And we'll talk about prayer. And we'll talk about giving our bodies and our hearts and our minds to God. And as we continue to walk deeper into that temple, we'll engage with other areas that God wants to shape and reshape us. I ask our music team to come up. Father God, my, my watch is buzzing telling me I've made my steps for the day. Thank you, God. I've got a bit of exercise in. But Lord, I, as we, some of us tend to be really good at caring for our physical bodies, but it's time maybe we need to be looking at our spiritual bodies, our minds and our souls. And for those of us who might not look after our, spiritual body, our physical bodies, maybe it's time that we need to look after that as well. But we want to honour you, Lord, as we go on this journey together. We want to know what it means to be your people in your space together. Why is it that we do what we do? Why is it that we are who we are? We want to honour you, Lord, and we want to lift you up. In Jesus' name we pray.